Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome, Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. So that's how you, you decided to change this up, is just by going all reversey. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's throwing everybody for a loop on that. I can't say the next part, though, because I'm not an attorney at all. So you have to say it <laughs> anyway. You could say that he's an attorney. Uh, okay, fine. I'm your host, David Trusha, the lead writer for the Laxfax Institute. He's an attorney, but he won't be speaking as one today. <laughs> or ever on this podcast, as David is so very fond of pointing out. You, you keep saying that. I don't actually remember saying that myself. You say it all the time. Look, we've got um, documentary evidence of that. You were the first to say it. All right. Well, I don't remember which episode it was. If we have somebody that has a really good memory or wants to investigate our episodes, I think we can prove that. But anyway, I'm not saying you're um, wrong. I'm just saying I associate that phrase with you much more than with me. Fair enough. Fair enough. I've, now I'm completely lost. I'm just going to keep going and say my actual Before we begin, <laughs> please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice and that all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization, and if you'd like to learn more about us or to make a donation, please visit our website at lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. As a reminder, this is a legal issues podcast not a political issues podcast. We do try to keep our commentary strictly on legal issues, although today, more than ever before, more issues are considered political than than ever. I've said ever before twice in the same sentence. All right. Well, anyway, we believe that it's especially important to distinguish between the two, so we'll be doing that on this podcast. Do you see what happens when you just change things no, for the sake of changing them? I don't stick to the them? script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that, you know, spent a lot of the same way again and again. Figured maybe we ought to mix it up. Yeah, okay. All right. And Lex Rex is Latin for the law is king because we believe that only the law should rule. All right. Now that yes, you've that's right. just absolutely decimated this whole thing, we've got... Reduced by a factor of 10. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what I meant by that. <laughs> Decimate. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, all right. We don't need to go into the etymology of that. Although I, d I will say a friend of mine at my last job kept trying to talk me into doing a podcast about etymologies because I, I bring them up a lot and he thought that it should be recorded for some reason and I told him it was an awful idea and I stand by that. Let's put a poll on the Facebook page. Do you want an etymology section of this podcast? <laughs> uh, of course, that is going to be directly relevant to legal issues. Because the way that words are used is directly relevant to legal issues. You know, it's, it's, Scalia actually has a, a prolonged section on that on his book, Reading Law, uh, where he talks about, you know, which dictionaries ought to be used, how they ought to be used. So, yeah, etymologies actually would be relevant. If you're interested in that, <laughs> vote yes on the poll. I know I'm going to be voting yes. So All right. We'll our, I will be voting what now. What our listeners think. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we're already at a... At, a, at an what, impasse. What do you call that? It's a, a deadlock. No, it's a... You deadlock, yeah. So yeah. if you want to break that, uh, you can visit our podcast page on Facebook. That's, I don't actually know what the URL is, but if you search <laughs> Lex Rex Institute Podcast on Facebook, you'll probably find it. Yeah, and we have a few things to talk about this evening, including the return of our Hall of Shame segment. But before we get into that, Alexander, you mentioned you wanted to take a minute to talk about one of the cases that we're currently working on. So why don't you take it away? Yeah. So we have filed a lawsuit asking for an injunction against a Los Angeles County law that requires 
poll workers, so people who are actually administering our elections, to provide proof of COVID-19 vaccination in order to qualify for the job. Now, obviously, lots of jobs are requiring this. Kind of a different thing when you require it for poll workers because that necessarily is going to influence the political process. That's part of the political process. Um, and, you know, I think it's no secret that opinions on COVID vaccination are at least perceived, if not in fact, uh, tend to cleave along political lines. You know, people of one political group, I think, are perceived as less likely to get vaccinated. And they are, in effect, compelling political speech about vaccination. You know, it's, it's I'm in more than one group where whether or not somebody is vaccinated or whether or not somebody is unvaccinated is viewed as sort of a litmus test for that person's politics, you know, whether or not they're actually doctrinaire in their views. So by compelling an attestation that a person is vaccinated, we believe this is a compelled political speech issue. And we believe that it actually corrupts our electoral process, because if people know that every single person at the polls holds a contrary political view to theirs, you can absolutely guarantee that's going to change people's voting behavior. I mean, that's the basis for overruling a lot of the Jim Crow laws. I really don't think it's any different here. So we're challenging that. We're confident about our success on that, but we'll keep you posted on the way that case goes. I hesitate to say that there is discriminatory intent in creating a law like this. There very well might be. It wouldn't be at all inconsistent with what we've seen from you know, different county registrars in the past. And certainly, you know, Republicans are already fairly underrepresented as poll workers, which obviously is going to create a biased electoral process. But you know, I, I do hesitate to say that's intentional, since I guess kind of employers across the board are imposing these requirements. But it really is a very different thing when it comes to the polls, especially because all the voters that come in, you know, there's, there's nothing requiring them to attest to their vaccination. So the vast majority of people in that polling place are going to be of undetermined vaccine status anyway. So the public health argument here, I'm not even sure how you make it. But yeah, but that's the case that we're bringing. All right. Well, Keep an eye out for materials from us coming on that, maybe. Yeah, and we could use funding on that. As always, our cases are funded. In, this one's funded almost exclusively by contributions from the public. Um, so that's one where we would very much appreciate you to come alongside us and join us in this fight. You know, people are asking me all the time, how can I get involved in upholding our Constitution? And we do have lots of volunteer opportunities, but, you know, lots of folks don't have time to volunteer. Your money really does get put to good good use. You know, your money will be put directly toward this case so that we can make sure that our political process, particularly our you know, the vote, our actual elections, are conducted with integrity and not in a biased manner. Yeah. Well, anyway, we should probably get into the main program for the evening, and that's going to start with another edition of our Supreme Court Hall of Shame. I don't know if you have... There you go. I was going to say, I'm not sure you have the theme music queued up because it's been a while since we did this. But you're quick on the trigger as yeah, always. So we're hoping the court's ruling on, on our challenge to that, that Los Angeles law isn't going to be another uh, Hall of Shame-worthy case. Yeah. <laughs> so, but there are plenty of them. Uh, which one are we looking at today, David? We are going to be discussing Gonzalez v. Rach, Reich, Reich. I have no idea how you pronounce it, but... <laughs> R-A-I- I think it's pronounced Gonzalez. <laughs> well, certainly the Gonzalez part of that is, yes. Um, oh, <laughs> well, that's the one I know. So Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I've other. always heard it Rach, Gonzalez v. Rach. Okay. That was how it was taught to the, me. That, so. uh, you know, that, that's yeah. certainly it's sort of the, the way you would pronounce it if you were confident that it were in English. 
Um, I'll say that. Which law professors often are. Yeah. <laughs> this was a case back from 2005, or at any rate, decided in 2005. But it is yet another that centers on the interstate commerce power. Yeah, so some of you folks who have listened to this podcast for a while may remember our episode on a little case called Wickard v. Filburn. Mm -hmm. If you don't remember that one, we'll put it up in our description. We'll put a link to that episode. But the significant thing in that case was it dealt with Congress's power to regulate commerce between the states. That's the power, as articulated in the U.S. Constitution, regulate commerce between the states. So if Congress passes a regulation... You know, we've mentioned before that generally if Congress wants to regulate something, there aren't that many powers they can use to justify it. So they tend to try to use the commerce power. So if they've passed a regulation, question becomes, is it commerce? Is it between the states? Yeah. So if something's not commerce or if something only occurs in one state and is commerce, it's not going to fall within that power. Or so you'd think. So, <laughs> or so you well, I, <laughs> Yeah. Or so you would think. Yeah. So to give a little bit of historical context on this, this case is from 2005, as David mentioned, which means that it comes after a couple of very significant Supreme Court cases. One of those cases is Lopez. That's the case that found that a federal law banning guns on schools, so banning guns in schools, was unconstitutional because guns aren't commerce. Schools aren't commerce. You know, schools are free. You pay for them with your taxes. No interstate commerce there. Can't ban it. It also comes on the heels of Morrison, which is a case that found the Violence Against Women Act unconstitutional. Now, you may have heard of that act. Probably where you've heard of it is uh, our current president, Joe Biden, tends to sort of tout that as one of the notches on his belt, uh, one of his accomplishments. He generally you know, fails to mention, or I guess forgets to mention, who knows, uh, <laughs> that that was ruled unconstitutional. You'd think that would be kind of relevant in whether or not your legislation is something you want to tout as an accomplishment, but he does talk about that. That was also ruled unconstitutional because we have not commercialized violence against women. You know, that's not really a commercial activity. <laughs> uh, and that was not a criminal law. That was actually civil law that had to do with penalties for violence against women. So, yeah, that's not a regulation of commerce that was ruled unconstitutional. So this comes on the heels of that. So looking at those two cases, anything stand out about those two cases to you, David? Other than the fact that they're plainly non-commercial? <laughs> well, I, I mean, the last commerce case that we looked at on this podcast was Wickard v. Filmer. Yeah. Which was a guy who was growing his own wheat on his own land for his own consumption. Yeah. And the court said that substantially affects commerce between states, establishes the substantial effect test. Therefore, it is subject to congressional regulation. You know, somehow growing your own wheat on your own land for your own consumption, so it's not in more than one state and you're certainly not selling it. Somehow that's, that's interstate commerce. Yeah. So when we look at this, you know, these two cases that I just mentioned, Morrison and Lopez, anything stand out about those? I'm not tracking with you here. <laughs> well, they definitely seem to be walking back the commerce power, right? Oh, you. I mean, in, after, in terms of the, after Wickard v. Filburn, you'd assume that anything would be interstate commerce. I see what you mean. Yeah, so in, they seem to be signals that the court is willing to revisit the Wickard precedent, or at least, you know, implicitly to do so. Yeah, put, put the commerce power back within constitutional bounds. You know, those are. And, and a lot of folks, a lot of lawyers were very optimistic about those two cases. Then along comes Gonzalez. David, tell us about Gonzalez. So, Gonzalez deals with the case of a, a couple women in California where 
California, I think in 1996, passed mm-hmm. a bill permitting the use of marijuana for medical purposes. You know, ganja, reefer, <laughs> yeah, for, and for weed. The, for those who have been <laughs> in California for any significant length of time, you'll note that that you know seems to have been a very popular decision based on the number of dispensaries that have grown up. But <laughs> <laughs> although actually, you know, prior to the, to legalizing marijuana and whatever year we did it, we actually did have a ballot proposition, I think in 2008, where we voted down legalization of marijuana, you know, recreational legalization of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And then I always find that really annoying when they come back with a a ballot proposition that was just disapproved by the voters and then asked to have it enacted again. Yeah. But they did that. And then for whatever reason, it succeeded a few years later, but it didn't the first time around. Yeah. But at any rate, these two women, one of whom was Rach, we'll go with that pronunciation. Um, the other, whose name I think was Monson, both of them were having, well, one was having marijuana grown for her to use for medicinal purposes. The other was growing her own personally. Now, the key point there is in neither- On her own land yeah, for her own consumption. In neither case were they paying. The, the one who had it grown for her, that was done voluntarily by her caregivers. And in the other case, it was her personal efforts growing it. Now- the problem with that is that I, I always think it's funny, you know, sorry to interrupt, David, but I always think it's funny. Kind of the pro marijuana camp says, how can you outlaw marijuana? It's a plant. Yeah. It just grows. Well, that doesn't stop the federal government from outlawing wheat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a fair point. Yeah. You know, it's from the earth. It may not be the knockout argument in light of Wickard. Um, that's right. what people seem to think is. <laughs> Uh, they don't seem to particularly care if it's natural. Yeah, <laughs> but at any rate, the pro- the problem with this situation, though, is that despite the fact that they seem to be, as far as I know, were never found not to be in compliance with California law, under federal law, marijuana is categorized as a Schedule One substance, which basically means there are very bad. There are like no circumstances under which you're going to be permitted to to manufacture this substance. Yeah, no legal use. You can't yeah. even use it for like research purposes. Yeah. I think like there may be extremely limited circumstances under which you can do something with it, but basically no, off limits. So, the DEA yeah. We we got to keep those paper mills open, David. <laughs> we need to make it schedule 1 or William Randolph Hearst can't sell his paper. Yeah, hemp will overtake paper. Um that's, I, I don't know if there's any truth to those conspiracy theories, but, but that, that's one of the yeah, you, one of the things. I'm sure people have probably at least vaguely heard reference to that. You can look it up if you're interested. But um, at any rate, the DEA raided and destroyed the plants that they were growing for this purpose. And the women and their caregivers who joined the suit anonymously, I assume, you know, out of fear of legal consequences, challenged this. I, I always find that, by, by the way, I always, I'm sorry I keep interrupting you, David, but I always find that crazy especially in light of what's going on right now, that somebody is openly doing something, they believe what they're doing is perfectly legal, and the FBI comes in and swats them. Yeah. You know, you could just subpoena them. You don't need to have the SWAT team show up and seize all their stuff in the middle of the night. Yeah, you'd think. But um, <laughs> Anyway, so they lodge a challenge basically alleging that this application of the Controlled Substances Act, which is the federal law, under which the DEA was acting, violates the Commerce Clause in this context, namely, you know, where it's, again, occurring in one state and in a non-commercial form. Yeah. So it's medicinal purposes, nobody's buying it, and it's only, you know, it's only legal in California. It can only be going on in California, it can't possibly be interstate. Yeah. 
So they challenge that, and significantly, so think, keep in mind here, this, is, this ends up being the important dispositive issue of this case. Remember, dispositive is what allows you to dispose with the case. It's the thing that ultimately decides the case. Um, dispositive issue ends up being that complainants do not bring a facial challenge to the, the prohibition against growing med medical marijuana or even marijuana more broadly. Instead, they bring a challenge as applied to themselves. They say that the federal law against marijuana as applied to the complainants is unconstitutional because they are not buying marijuana on the market and because they are not using marijuana that travels in channels between states. Yeah, which, you know, those of you who've listened to a lot of this show may get the sense already that there's something a little off with that reasoning and certainly strikes me is why would you ask them to bring the broadest possible challenge as opposed yeah and, and that's that's generally regarded as good strategy exactly from constitutional lawyers you know you don't want to ask for the moon yeah you want to ask for something smaller they're more likely to grant that because Judicial restraint is something that's very valued in our system. We want judges to rule simply on the matters that are before them. That's the way our justice system works. Right. Courts hear cases and controversies. So they hear things as applied to individuals. And when individuals say, you know, this thing as applied to me is illegal, if they can say that it's possible for the court to allow them to continue doing what they're doing without overturning the entirety of the, the legal scheme they've implemented, yeah, that's, what, that's the case you're supposed to bring. That's what you should do. Exactly. And so it's, it's really bizarre that the opinion of the court seems to turn that on its head and say, no, 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 no. You would have won if you'd said, get rid of all of it. <laughs> but Yeah, that's basically what Justice Stevens ends up saying in the opinion of the court on this. So let's turn to the opinion of the court. David, you remember the breakdown on, on who went which way on this well, case? Well, um, outside of Stevens and Scalia being in the majority and Clarence Thomas being a dissenter. I don't remember all of the breakdown. It's basically a political split on this one. The, the ostensible left wing of the court says that the law is fine and that these people cannot have their marijuana because the federal law has prohibited that. The ostensible right wing of the court says, no, we think that that's too far, that that's interstate commerce run amok. With the notable exception. Except, yeah. <laughs> right, the swing vote on this case. Uh -huh. The case that ends up, or the vote that ends up making it go in favor of the government is none other than the late Justice Scalia. Yeah, which, you know, we, we've had this conversation off air at numerous times, but it is, you know, striking that it seems to be that if you want to sway Scalia away from a sort of predictable route, you make the case about drugs. <laughs> Look, Scalia is the guy that wrote the Lopez opinion. Scalia is one of the most vocal critics yeah. of the wickered, substantial effect, interstate commerce regime. He was the guy that was walking that back. I think he may have written the opinion in Morrison, too. I don't remember who wrote that one. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember who wrote that one. Okay. But, yeah, it... Cause it, it I think it might have been Rehnquist. That sounds plausible. That. But it is, you know, it is noteworthy that you get Scalia and Thomas on opposite sides here on a commerce. Scalia doesn't like drugs. Yeah. Scalia. He really doesn't like drugs. You know, that, that, that's Employment Division v. Smith, which may be another one that we do on our Hall of Shame at some point, uh -huh. which, which had to do with basically free exercise of religion. A guy was fired for smoking peyote on the job, and the facts are kind of horrendous because he worked at like a drug rehab place, 
and he was smoking peyote on the job and then said, I'm a Native American. It's part of my religion that I have to smoke peyote. And I kind of suspect that Scalia just didn't believe that was like a real religion. I didn't really <laughs> think that was true. Uh, so we end up getting this horrible ruling in Smith because, again, bad facts make bad law. Well, don't give too much away about this because we probably will do that one at some point. But <laughs> Okay, but anyway, Scalia, not a big fan of drugs. And those are not the only two times. There are others that may make it onto this Hall of Shame, too. Drugs aren't great. I, I, that's an understatement. Drugs are very bad. <laughs> I don't know a whole lot about marijuana. David, do you know about the uh, the devil's lettuce? <laughs> Not particularly. Other than that, I really hate the smell of it. That's, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, that's about my only strong uh, factual stance. Anyway. Yeah, that's. I, I don't know. If people say it's not harmful. I don't have any opinion. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. know a lot about it. You know, make up your own mind about that. We're not doctors. I think I'm probably not gonna um. <laughs> not gonna use it anyway. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> even if it's not harmful, it's certainly not helpful for most things. Whether it has does have some medicinal effects, I don't know. Maybe if somebody's not eating, that's yeah. But uh, I'm not a doctor. Don't listen to that. Yeah. At least not that kind of doctor. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> And you're not speaking kind of as doctor. any kind of doctor, bear in mind. That's correct, yeah. Well, no, that, that's not true. I'm speaking as a jurist. Oh, I, su- I suppose, yeah, that's true, because that's the academic side of it as opposed to the practical side. So, yeah, technically you are right. speaking as a jurist doctor. All right. Um. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, we're talking, we're talking about the Stevens opinion on yeah. this. And, and, and Scalia, yeah. So what's the, what's the sort of general gist of Stevens' opinion on this? Do you remember, David? Well, he certainly makes recourse back to Wickard and says, you know, even though in Wickard it seemed like nothing about it was either commercial or interstate, we still said it was interstate and commercial. So the same yeah. basic. Wickard's like the here. only case they cite. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. I, Except for they, they, they distinguish Morrison and Lopez. They say we're not undoing Morrison and Lopez. We're not overruling those. Those are still good law. This one's different, though. Yeah. How is it different? That, you know... I'll admit I didn't have time to read this one very thoroughly, so that actually remains pretty unclear to me because you think... <laughs> as best as I understand it, and this this is the argument, folks. Like, I'm not making this up. Marijuana is often involved in interstate commerce. I did, yep. In fact, mm-hmm. marijuana has a market price. People buy and sell it all the time. And if we allow exceptions to Congress's general regime on marijuana regulation, it may find its way into interstate commerce and therefore may potentially have a substantial effect upon interstate commerce, thereby satisfying the Wickard test. Yeah, this was another one, another facet of this case rather that strikes me, you know, it's hard in the abstract to imagine a more blatant issue than you would get in in Wickard, where, as we've said repeatedly, it's not interstate. On its face, it's not interstate. And on its face, it's not commercial. This one adds to that, you know, because at least in Wickard, yeah, people do openly trade wheat across state lines. That happens all the time. It's still illegal to trade marijuana across state right. lines. So Commerce in marijuana is still illegal. Right. So you'd think that you would at least have to consider, now wait a minute, since we've still kept this thing illegal in other contexts, it's at least worth asking whether this would have any effect on that. Because people would still have to decide to break the law to sell and buy across state lines. Whereas that's if, exactly right. If we just say so, in any you know, market there is for marijuana is an inherent. It's a black market inherently. Right. So it's debatable whether it even is a commercial commodity. Yeah, and not to mention that you know permitting it in this case, 
you could very easily argue it wouldn't affect even that black market thing because maybe people would buy it legally who wouldn't buy it illegally. You know? Right. Like, it, and that, that sort of leads to what I really think is sort of the most shameful part of this opinion, where Stevens basically says, well, if you'd brought that case to me, the case that you just described, David, mm-hmm. the case saying that this law in general is unconstitutional because it attempts to regulate something that is not interstate commerce, is maybe you would have won on that. Yeah. But he says, courts have no power, quote, to excise as trivial individual instances of the class. What does that mean? Basically. It means you can't make a carve out for the individual litigants. So if you have a law and you think that law in general is constitutional, if somebody comes to you and says, yeah, that law in general might be constitutional, but as applied to me, it appears to violate the constitution. Stephen says that courts can't do anything about that. Yeah, which, you know... That's why courts exist. Yeah, and it's setting off immediate alarm bells in my head because, you know, having listened to you for long enough, I think about Blackstone um, a lot when I think about this sort of thing. And he actually mentions a case very much like this when he's talking about how to interpret laws, where he says if it's an absurd interpretation, like say you have a law against prisoners, you know, escaping the prison. Well, what if the prison's on fire? Are you going to, you know, punish a a prisoner who decides he doesn't want to die in a fire, so he leaves the jail? Right, yeah. That's one of the things No, this is exactly where there's room for equity. Yeah. It's, and and this is, I mean, it's crazy because this is literally the reason the courts exist is to mete out individualized justice. You know, they're not supposed to just be god emperors that decide whether or not laws are legal or illegal. Yeah. They're supposed to look at the individual cases that are brought to them and rule on those cases. Yeah. So I think that's truly shameful. Yeah. Oops, that was the wrong shame. <laughs> shame. 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 So Justice Stevens deserves that. Of course, he's one of the one of the most perceived as one of the probably the very most left wing justice who was on the court at that time. So what does the uh, the most conservative or most perceived as most conservative or at the very least second most conservative? I think that you know Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas were. Neck and neck. Both yeah. was very, very conservative. Justice Scalia was often more outspokenly so. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> so what does he have to say? Well, he has a concurring opinion. He doesn't just agree with everything that Justice Stevens says because, he, you know, he's loath to do that. <laughs> and he seems to recognize the fact that, you know, he's got a little bit of reputation now as the guy who's walked back the Commerce Clause, a vocal critic of the Commerce Clause. So he insists that his opinion is more, quote unquote, nuanced than the majority. David, did you find it more nuanced? Not particularly. <laughs> did you find any differences at all? With, again, the caveat that I didn't have time to really thoroughly read this, nothing comes to mind that would seem, you know, to really set it apart. Well, what, what he says is that you know, he also uses the substantial effect test yeah. from Wickard. Mm-hmm. But he goes a little bit further. He adds another test, which, again... You know, Scalia, ostensibly an originalist, probably shouldn't be adding new balancing tests. Yeah, you'd think. <laughs> We've talked about that before, but he does. You know, we already have the substantial effect, and he adds a new one now, and he says that the means chosen by the government to effectuate a law must be, quote-unquote, reasonably adapted to the attainment of a legitimate end under the commerce power. So he says it's not enough that it just substantially affect commerce. They've also got to pick something that's reasonably adapted to that end. Yeah. How do you pick whether or not something's reasonably adapted to an end, David? Well. Do you look at black letter law to do that? 
No, you just kind of think about eh. it, basically. <laughs> it seems reasonable to me, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the kind of test he sets up here. That That is what he says is his more nuanced approach. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have anything to say Shame. about that other than... Shame. 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 Yeah, Scalia's a really great... Uh, Scalia is the reason why originalism is a thriving yeah. philosophy today. You know, he, he is... The benefit he has done to the legal community cannot possibly be overstated. Yeah. But and then stuff like this comes out. Yeah, and again, you know, the name of the organization, the name of the show, is not Scalia Rex, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not everybody's perfectly consistent with their own principles, especially when drugs are involved. <laughs> you know, that's the things drugs do to the brain, kids. Yeah, but this is your brain on anti-drug, <laughs> I guess, in this case. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Drugs do this to the brain even if you're not taking them. Yeah. Even if you're just thinking about them, this is what they do to you. So really, <laughs> this is sort of a warning. Don't think about drugs, kid. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be like Justice Scalia. Not, not in this case, anyway. <laughs> no, this is a cautionary tale. <laughs> if you want to know the right way this could have gone, we've kind of already gone over on our time for this, but you read Justice Thomas's opinion. He does a really good job in this one. He does not allow drugs to affect his reasoning here, uh, where I think that everybody else did. But it's kind of funny. I just want to comment, you know, I just want to point out here before we move on that it's kind of funny. You know, the left wing of the court is the one that ends up saying that you can't have medicinal marijuana in California. And the right wing of the court is the one that says that you can, with the exception of Justice Scalia. Yeah. Because it, it, it seems that an all-powerful, omnipotent Congress that can do whatever the heck it wants uh, is more sort of the overriding concern. Yeah, <laughs> yeah more fundamental than, than medicinal marijuana. So. Yeah, bigger fish to fry in this case. Yeah. And I, I think well, Stevens, that, did, uh, for... Stevens did take the opportunity to say, well, we feel really, really bad in this case for these people because they should really probably be allowed to have it here. But... Can't let he didn't them have, have cancer it. or something. It was something really bad. What? They actually, I guess, needed the marijuana. Rach's doctor testified that he was concerned for her very life for various reasons. You know, and again, I'm not a doctor. I can't offer any kind of. And, and neither is Justice there. Stevens right. or Justice Scalia, which is yeah. really the point here. You know, Justice Scalia was the one that, uh, when, when Justice Breyer referred to his pet oyster, Justice Scalia responded that. Oysters are not animals. Uh, <laughs> so I, I probably wouldn't trust him on biological matters that much. No. Although he's a really good judge most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we are over time I, I don't already. think Breyer actually had a pet oyster. That was that was sort of his hypothetical. He was known for crazy hypotheticals. Yeah. You know, radioactive <laughs> spiders and yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, stuff like that. We are, we are over time on this segment, though, so we have to wrap it up there. But anyway, uh, that's been another instance of the Supreme Court Hall of Shame. All right, so next. Why? Tell it. Tell your story. So as a segue, tell your story about that French guy that you saw. <laughs> okay, this really doesn't seem relevant to anything. Um, <laughs> I just but, found it amusing. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, I, I, I told Alexander and one of our other friends earlier today that while I was here in Scotland, I was walking on the street today, and I saw what seemed like you know, if they put it in an SNL skit, you'd be like, oh, that's a an little... An excessively French fellow. That would be on the nose. You'd think, wow, that's sort of <laughs> hacky writing. But I did see a, a man speaking in French on a cell phone, smoking a cigarette. He had a waxed mustache, and he was wearing a beret. Um, and I had just never actually... <laughs> was it one of those brown cigarettes? 
Like the one that... <laughs> I didn't get a good look at his cigarette. <laughs> I'll be honest. I was walking past him. But I Was just... he carrying a baguette? Not that I could see. And he wasn't wearing one of those... Um, uh, the striped yeah, shirt. the striped shirts from Brittany either. So you know, uh, that's he bad. could have been Frencher, I guess, but it still seemed like <laughs> it was just something out of a bad movie that was suddenly dropped into my actual experience. Yeah, that's that's fun. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, I, you don't I, run into that too much here. I enjoyed it. Maybe in uh, maybe in Quebec, but not here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna, we wanted to take the minute to talk uh, about a headline that I encountered recently about a, a bill that's being proposed right now. I think sort of the impetus for it has to do with the situation in Ukraine. I think that's got people thinking about war, war and, crimes. and war crimes more. But We're talking about war crimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very fun stuff. But the name of the bill that's being proposed is the Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act. And, well, I guess we, we should probably start by talking about what American law currently has to say about war crimes. Yeah, what does it have to say about war crimes, David? Well, we uh, we looked that up to be sure we uh, we were not talking a, about not that. a whole heck of a lot. Not right? very it's, much. It basically just incorporates a bunch of international law and says that's now the law here. Yeah. So basically, you know, the the actual sort of definition of what a war crime is is pretty much just wholesale saying look at the Hague Convention, look at the Geneva Convention, and then you know it adds language when those have been revised and says, you know, see the updated version, basically. We're, we're not big fans of that here because we don't like holding our constitution hostage to international law. We believe that our laws should be written by our legislature. And while technically the legislature did write, we're just going to do whatever the heck the Hague says. I, we like them to do a little bit more work than that. You know, it's we, we don't think they should just copy some other kid's homework. Yeah, basically. But, and this is sort of the key point, existing law in the U.S., limits the you know the sort of the scope of who can be charged with a war crime to someone who two people within american jurisdiction yeah right? so because, <laughs> well basically you know, and, it's, it's i let's take a step back nation what's a nation like we have we talked about what a nation is before no although this is a this is a good concept uh for a future episode where we would talk about sort of the, the law of nations and, and how stuff like that works but basically for practical purposes a, a state or well, a state, in, not in the sense of a U.S. state, but a state as a political entity, a sovereign entity, or a country or a nation is basically, you know, an area where a particular law holds sway, where a particular... A, a land, a yeah. geographical area, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, kind of fun fact, probably most of you knew this already, but that's the reason why we call U.S. states states. We want to be very, very clear that we actually do have 50 separate sovereign states. Yeah. That have their own... That are united in one nation. Yeah. But, you know, it's 50 states. It's not just administrative districts to, you know, yeah. cite something from that French constitution. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is why... This is one of the reasons why things like the commerce power are so critical is because it's supposed to limit the authority of Congress basically to areas where states couldn't have legitimate authority. Like things where it's right. dealing with multiple states. No one of them yeah, could prevail. Those are hard things to navigate. We know that California has absolute sovereignty over California. Right. But when something's moving back and forth between California and Nevada, just how much authority does California have over that versus how much authority does Nevada have over that? So that's why we've yeah. given regulation of commerce between the states to Congress. Yeah. Because this is sort of foundational in what our concept of a state is. It has authority over its jurisdictional area. Yeah. Other thing to keep in mind, 
is that there are people who are subject to the jurisdiction of a particular state, and there are different degrees to which someone can be subject to a state's jurisdiction. Obviously, the highest degree of you know, subject to the full jurisdiction of a particular state is going to be that state's citizens. Yeah. Or in the case of a monarchy, the subjects right. of that state. Yeah. Or of that king, because you know the king is sovereign over the state. Yeah. Yeah. So keep bear in mind those two concepts. Obviously, if somebody is a, a lawful permanent resident, they'll be subject to most of the jurisdiction of that state, but not all of it. They, for instance, won't have the right to vote if that's a right that goes along with citizenship. Uh, yeah citizenship in that state. Yeah. Uh, and then somebody who's like an illegal alien, which, sorry, I don't mean to be offensive. That's the legal term. So that's what I use. But if somebody's an illegal alien somewhere, they are not subject to the jurisdiction of that state. Somebody that's part of it, partial jurisdiction. You know, they murder somebody, they're going to be tried in the criminal court for that murder. Yeah. But a lot of the different things that are true of rights that attach to citizens of a state are not going to attach to illegal aliens. And that's actually, you know, there's a, there's a big dispute between people who I think care about and understand the U.S. Constitution <laughs> and people who want to be nice to illegal aliens, uh, irrespective of what the law says, who, who believe that. So, that may so, be slightly less. Obviously, constitutionally, <laughs> well, I mean, constitutionally speaking, if somebody is born to someone else who is not subject to the full jurisdiction of the United States, that person doesn't obtain birthright citizenship. That's a basic, straightforward concept. Uh, a lot of people nowadays reject that notion because they don't understand the idea of jurisdiction. Yeah. And that's sort of what's going on here as well, both jurisdictions over territory and jurisdictions over people. When it comes to the war crimes, Yeah. what, what is this called? The well, the War Crimes Act yeah. that's being proposed in Congress right now. Yeah, so uh, as it's currently formulated, the law says we can prosecute people who either are Americans or were in the American military or who, you know, the victims of the thing they allegedly did were Americans or in the American military. So that's how it's currently defined. Now, I think a lot of people... That makes sense, because even if the military is abroad, they're acting with the explicit authorization and... and orders from the United States government. So yeah. they are still subject to a U.S. jurisdiction when they aren't on, in U.S. territory. That's the rationale behind that. Yeah. And now I think there are plenty of people who seem to be upset with this idea because they say, well, what if, you know, someone who commits war crimes in a foreign country then leaves, comes to America, they can't be prosecuted under this unless the people they victimized were Americans. If it was you know somebody else, yeah. we can't do anything to them. And so this new act would say, you know, we're going to rewrite that part about who can be tried for these, who can be, you know, charged with these crimes. And it's going to add anyone who just happens to be in the United States at a given time. And is a war criminal under the Geneva Convention. Right, Hague, yeah. Which kind of gets us back to the problem of just adopting wholesale international standards for war crimes, because those international standards don't really take into account jurisdictions because they're yeah. supposed to be things that apply internationally, right? Right. Which then makes those things effectively supersede our Constitution because our Constitution is the law of the land. So when these things would apply over and above the Constitution because they lack jurisdictional bounds, I, I think that makes them unconstitutional facially. But anyway, let, let's go on and talk about sort of the details of this. Yeah. So, so th this new bill would modify the previous law basically by rewriting it so that it says jurisdiction over an offense described applies if, and then it gives the conditions. And it's one, the offense occurs in whole or in part within the United States, which that fine. makes sense. No issue with that. Yeah, territorial jurisdiction, perfectly fine. 
Or two, regardless where the offense occurs, Uh if the victim or offender is a national of the United States or an alien lawfully admitted for permanent residence, so that's personal jurisdiction. Okay, that that makes sense. You you still have jurisdiction over your people because by mere fact of their citizenship, you you have jurisdiction over them. Or two, a member of the armed forces of the United States, regardless of nationality, which, as we discussed, that also makes sense because that's an instrument of the U.S. Right. Or... The offender is present in the United States, regardless of the nationality of the victim or offender. And if that, and, and obviously, you know, this has got to be distinct from subsection A, mm-hmm. which says if the crime occurs in the United States. Yeah. Because that would already be included in subsection A if that were the case. So what that means is somebody's committed this war crime somewhere else, you know, Yemen, wherever. They come to the United States. Well. Even though you weren't subject to U.S. jurisdiction when you did that, you are now, so we're going to try you for a crime that you committed while you were not subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Yeah. and That's crazy. Yeah, and, you know... Is that how you get jurisdiction? Could I just declare right now, like, on this podcast, that I've got jurisdiction over all, I don't know, Vietnamese people, and that if they ever come to my house, I'm going to... Yeah, you know... Prosecute them for, I, I don't know, whatever. Conceptually, it's pretty similar to an ex post facto law. So a law where, you know, you said, if you did this in the past, even though it wasn't illegal at the time, you can now be held responsible for it. It's not exactly the same as that, but it's kind of similar. I think it is. You know? I, I think, yeah, you know, I would, if I were bringing a challenge against this, you know, if I defended one of these people, I would do it on ex post facto ground. Yeah, because you, you see at least the broad similarity where, you know, you were under a completely different legal authority at the time this happened because you weren't an American, so there was no personal jurisdiction over you, and you weren't in America, so there was no territorial jurisdiction over you. You know, it was really an issue for the country that it happened in or the country to, you know, that you have citizenship in or belong to in some, you know, sense, right? And then just... That that was good. By the way, we didn't use those terms earlier, personal jurisdiction and territorial jurisdiction. Those are the two concepts we talked about earlier. Those are the terms that describe those. Yeah. So thanks, David. Okay. (laughs) I thought we did, but (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Maybe um, we did. I was... should have been clearer about that. Regardless. Yeah, but, you know, and then you show up somewhere else and it's now we're going to hold you responsible for what happened back then. And, you know, on some level, I get why people... You know, think, oh, it doesn't seem right that, say, you know, if Hitler popped up right now, we couldn't get him for something. You know? No, that does seem right. <laughs> but, you know, what, what makes Hitler bad, what makes terrorists bad, what makes war criminals bad is they have no respect for the rule of law. Yeah. They put their own will and their own wishes, their own whims ahead of the rule of law. Yeah. That's what Congress is doing if they pass this. So I want to call out the people who propose this. It's Senator Durbin, Graham, and LaHaye, who have proposed this, you know. Anyway, you know, I don't want to, you know, obviously, I don't think either of us would say, you know what, we need to, we need to be nicer to these war criminals. (laughs) That's not the the thrust here. (laughs) The the point, though, (laughs) is that you can't do something about it, quote unquote, at the cost of completely abandoning the principles that make up a legal system. And that's basically what is going on here. So Yeah, so actually, you know, this and sort of our Hall of Shame topic were both jurisdictional topics. Yep. You know, it, it's basically under Gonzales v. Rach, they basically tried to do away with federalism in order to uphold federal drug laws. Yeah. Uh, and, and in this one, they're sort of doing away with jurisdiction altogether in order to get war criminals. Yeah. So, you know, you see the intent, but it's just horribly thought out, in my opinion. Bad facts make bad law. Yeah. 
You know, somebody does something really heinous, you want to get them. Yeah. That's, that, that's what we mean when we say bad facts make bad law, because you want to make sure that you have just equitable standards, even for the really bad guys. Yeah. And, you know, because part of the, the solution here would be when people come into the country, you should you would like to know whether or not they may have committed war crimes in the place that they're leaving, you know? And, That'd be good. And if they yeah. have, maybe you don't grant them permission to come into your country. <laughs> Gosh, this place. is probably... This is probably the conservative response to the fact that the Democrat administration is allowing more refugees. I think that may be part of the background. I think a big part of it also is that they really want to get the Russian, quote unquote, oligarchs who have presence in the U.S. Mm. That seems to be the more sort of immediate concern. But, yeah, I mean, it it could easily apply to broader immigration issues in general. Uh, That's absolutely true. A lot of why, you know, you ever read the book, You Give a Mouse a Cookie? Mm Mm-hmm. Or you give him a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk to go with it. And if you give him a glass of milk, he's going to want something to go with that. And, you know, on and on and on and on, slippery slope kind of argument. When it comes to bad laws, it really is a slippery slope. Yeah. Because you allow one bad policy, you'd implement a whole host of other bad policies just to control for that first one. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you you know, if you violated what should have been a solid principle of your law, then you need to come up with a whole host of sort of new ad hoc ways of fencing it in to keep it small and contained. But right. those usually have unintended consequences as well. Right. So it's, you know, when people say that we shouldn't allow unchecked and without any kind of preclearance refugees into this country, that's because they don't want to proliferate a bunch of laws like this. Yeah. Because this is kind of what you have to have if you allow in lots of people you know nothing about. Yeah. You know, which is not necessarily the same as saying we just shouldn't let in any number of refugees but you need a, no, a no, no, way no. of doing it where you understand who you're getting and you know whether there may be issues pertaining to letting them into the country right you know, i think that you know we, we are supposed to be the, the safe harbor of those who are oppressed i think we ought to let in refugees yeah we just ought to make sure that they're actually refugees yeah anyway <laughs> i guess that yeah so that that's that law yep. uh, we're not big fans of that that's more of a legal opinion than a political opinion, frankly, but that's, yeah, that is that. All right. So gather around kids. Let me find the thing. <laughs> you should probably cut this unless you think it's, yeah, well, you can you, leave it in, but you were so I, quick on the draw for the, uh, the hall of shame theme music that I thought you would be prepared for this one, but yeah, I thought so too. I, I had to search for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> gather around kids, young and old, everybody interested in American law or really the law. I didn't turn the volume up. Sorry, I have to start again. <laughs> Gather around kids, young and old, anybody interested in how our legal system works or doesn't work. Join us today once again for Captain Kangaroo Court. Sorry, it's so hard to hit that mark. I don't have the timing down on that yet. But anyway, Captain Kangaroo Court, where we talk about legal absurdities going on in the world of law. Um, I didn't know you were trying to to hit that mark, to be honest. I thought you just sort of said it and didn't try to uh, get it in sync with the music. But, well, I think usually I do a better job of that. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, I've got uh, a couple to go through. One of them is very quick, and we, we are sort of pressed for time. So I'll start with that. And this one, just, you know, as we've mentioned, I'm back in school again, and I'm doing work on the history of the church. Reminded me, uh, you know, some, some... The Mormon church, right? N- no, uh, not, not the Mormon church. You know, oh. 
some of the other ones. I thought it was weird you were going to Edinburgh for the, to talk about the Mormon church. Though. Yeah, no, I'm not. But, uh, you know, some reading I was doing. Which church? Remind us. Well, several. Um, but, uh, you know, particularly uh, the churches of the Reformation, which brings us to, to this story. Of the Protestant church. Then. Mostly, but, you know. It makes a lot of sense to go to Edinburgh for that. Yeah, um, Scotland, historically a... Protestant country. Yeah, they, they actually bound the British monarch, actually at the time Oliver Cromwell, but still, <laughs> I actually heard, I heard Charles III take an oath of this the other day. He's supposed to ensure that the the model of the Scottish church is based on the best Protestant churches. Yeah, which is something they made Cromwell agree to. Yeah. But So you're where, they, you're where the best Protestant churches are. It's legally the case. In, in, so. in theory, in theory. Anyway, some reading I was I just, doing. No, it's legally true. It's not just in theory. <laughs> it's a legal fact. In in well in Britain it's a legal fact, um, not necessarily elsewhere. Yeah, but um, we're not we're not big fans of Charles Rex because I don't think you should just be able to declare things thus. You know, yeah. declare that you're the, you're the best Protestant church and have that legally be true. Uh, we are more in favor of you know like actual legal standards for stuff. But yeah, anyway, that's that's true where you are, David. That's yeah. true. You are subject to the partial jurisdiction of the British Empire, so it is true where you are. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, some reading I was doing the other day, though, sort of tickled a memory in the back of my head about a very specific and very unusual trial that they held in the city of Riga during the Reformation. And I guess, you know, we'll need a quick overview of a couple pertinent facts. One thing is that the Protestant reformers tended not to be big fans of images of the saints or of Jesus, which, you know, decorated all the churches. You know, that was a very common thing. That's because they hate the saints? Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's it, I won't go too deep into the theology of it, but the, you know they, they have reasons for the theology and yeah. law are very interrelated, so I, I wouldn't shy away from it too much. Well, we we are pressed for time, so maybe uh, you know in a bonus episode I'll go into greater depth about this. But <laughs> so that's that's one thing you need to know, and another thing you need to know is that in the medieval Catholic Church, images of the saints were often associated with various kinds of miracles. People would go see a specific statue of Mary and be healed, or you know whatever else. So. So the Protestants thought that was idolatry. Yeah. So the city of Riga, which had been the seat of an archbishop, you know, converts to Lutheranism, you know, one of the, the main camps of Protestantism that's emerging. And so they decide, you know, hey, we're going to get rid of a lot. Named after Martin Luther King. <laughs> Vice versa, named after Martin Luther, whom Martin Luther King ah. Jr. was named after. And I guess Martin Luther King Sr., presumably. You don't really hear him talked about <laughs> a lot. It'd be a strange uh, <laughs> I think Martin Luther King Jr. was named after his dad, yeah, actually. So. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the namesake of Martin Luther King, anyway. Um, so anyway, the, the city of Riga, you know, decides, hey, we're going to, you know, change the way we're doing a lot of things. And so they have the local church that has this statue of Mary that was associated with all these kinds of miraculous healing stories. And they say, that sounds like witchcraft, all this sort of magical stuff happening, all this supernatural stuff. We're going to hmm. put this statue of Mary on trial as a witch. And so they do. Ooh, witch trials. <laughs> and so, you know, because there were laws against witchcraft, which back in the day, we tend to think of witches as kind of like a, a whimsical kind of character. You know, the, the cats and the broomsticks and all this sort of stuff. It's kind of a fun I'll Halloween thing. I'll get you thing. my pretty. Yeah. Your little dog, too. Uh, they thought it was more things like, you know, giving your neighbors the plague and ruining all the crops so everyone starved and that sort of thing. More sort of actively malevolent. So that's part of the reason yeah. for witch trials. There's some... Um, there's a bit about that in that uh, it's a wonderful documentary called Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <laughs> where yeah. they have a witch trial, uh -huh. and that's actually 
you know, believe it or not, one of the more accurate witch trials put to film. Yeah. Uh, because they're using all the Aristotelian standards. The judge, you know, she weighs the same as a duck, so on yeah. and so forth. It's a good scene. Uh, we'll put there, a link there's there. a very similar thing here where one of the... I'm not, I'm not kidding. It's one of the more accurate witch trials. Like, that's not a taken, joke. Taken to <laughs> absurdities, but yes, you're right, in terms of sort of the underlying philosophy. It's, it's, it's more accurate than the Crucible was, I can tell you that. <laughs> anyway, so the, at this trial in Riga, they, you know, they accuse the, the statue, and they say, you know, you've been... You know, all these magical sort of things seem to be happening around you. You seem like a witch. One of the classic ways you prove a witch is, you know, you put the accused in a pond, and if Build they a bridge out if they float on the water, it's because they're using their magical powers to not drown. So they take this wooden statue and they put it on the water. And if they if they sink if they sink then they yeah then you pull them out and they're not a witch. Um, okay. okay. Yeah. So they put this wooden statue on the water and it floats. So you know what? Point proven. It's a witch. Now, it's a witch. Yeah, and <laughs> but if it'd been made of, of stone, it wouldn't have. That's true. It, I guess they probably wouldn't have done that test. No, and you know that that's you know part of the background here is they knew, of course, that what they were doing was you know it was political theater, self consciously political theater. Yeah. But I think it's an amusing story nonetheless. And that, that's so we call that trial by ordeal. Uh-huh. By the way, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah, it's 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 one among many different forms of trial by ordeal. You heard a trial by combat that came up in the popular show Game of Thrones. That is an accepted form of trial under common law, although I think most jurisdictions no longer recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you find one that does, don't hire me as your lawyer. Uh, I'm not I'm not equipped for that. I'm very fat and slow, <laughs> but um, I, I prefer trial by evidence personally. Yeah, no, but, it seems but, to be general. Anyway, better. so trial by... I think that you tend to be fairer too. Yeah. But trial by ordeal is a different kind. You know, floating or not floating can be one form of that. Sticking your hand in a vat of boiling at or oil. Sorry, boiling oil yeah. was probably the most common form of trial by ordeal. Yep. Don't hire me as your lawyer for that either, please. No, there was a, a very famous one on the first crusade, where this guy presented himself as a, you know a prophet. He said he was receiving all these visions from God. And for a while, they were like, okay, you you know, so far, it seems to be working out. We'll believe you. And then when it stopped working out, they were like, you know what? We think you're lying. And he said, oh, give me a trial by ordeal. Like, you know, build the biggest fire you can, and I'll walk through it unscathed, and I'll survive. Wow. Didn't, uh, did not work out too well for him. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> but at least he was confident. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, he... You know, I know lawyers who are very confident they'll win their cases, too, and then yeah. don't. Well, and but to be generally fair, generally not that dramatically. At least one of the accounts, and, you know, there's always questions, because the people who wrote about it after the fact tended to be people who had been against him from the beginning anyway, so who knows if this is super accurate. But one of the accounts said he started off really confident, and then the day of, he tried to back out, and they wouldn't let him. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they wouldn't do it? Like, what was the plan there? Uh, yeah, that he was just going to sort of, like, slink off and maybe just, like, leave and go back to Europe. Um, maybe he figured if you said it confidently enough, then they would be like, oh, this guy. Yeah. We, there's no reason to do it. This guy's clearly. Yeah, no, he, he must. Yeah, he must be telling the truth. Anyway, so that, yeah, that was one. <laughs> but it, it, So I will not represent you in a trial by ordeal or a trial by combat. But if you live in a jurisdiction where there is still wiggle room to argue that these things are permissible and they deny you your right to a trial by combat or ordeal, I will gladly take it up on appeal. <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyway, that's that's one. Um, I, 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 I did. They had to explicitly abolish those things, or they are still legal remedies. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's actually a good point too. You know, people will sometimes talk about the idea of like blue laws or just sort of generally outdated laws, but 
almost treat them as though they're too silly to even acknowledge. But that's not really how law works. And, you know, no. if you want to get rid of something, no. you really need to do it. Anyway, uh, very briefly. And that, that's, that's an important mission of our organization, really, yeah. is getting laws that have been neglected recognized. Yeah. Actually, because if you don't think it ought to be law anymore, you should just change it. We have legislatures to do exactly that. Yeah. There was a very good line from Justice Gorsuch's opinion on the McGirt v. Oklahoma case that was exactly yes. on point yes. there. So you can go look that opinion up, or we have a video about that, too, on our YouTube channel. You can look up uh, that we quote. It's called No Reason Pessimism Should Prevail yeah. on our, our Lex Rex Institute YouTube channel. Yeah. That one I remember because I liked that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, you know, his, his opinion in that case, I think, really lays it out there on a lot of things we care about very deeply. So I'd recommend that people yeah. go read that if, they, if they're interested. Anyway, in the few minutes we have remaining. Watch, watch that. Well, read his opinion either, it also. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. Anyway, very briefly, we're going to go on to the second piece of the kangaroo court for this week, Captain Kangaroo Court. And so I'm sharing this, this uh, article with you. You see the headline says the Constitution is oh, broken no. and should not be reclaimed. From the New York Times. Yeah, well, of course. And, you know, this in and of itself. It says the Constitution is. Sorry. Uh, are you going to talk or should I? Wait, David's in, in Scotland now, so the internet only travels at the speed of light. We talk <laughs> over each other a lot. So. <laughs> but anyway, it yeah. says Constitution is broken and should not be reclaimed. Right, which in and of itself. Boy. You know, that's bad, but not, you know, it's just. Bad opinion, right? You maybe not the best yeah. fit for this segment, but, but I don't know why they give a platform to stuff like that. Honestly, would you go yes. ahead and read the byline for me? Uh, Doctor, how the heck do you pronounce that? Dorfler, I believe. Doctor Dorfler and Doctor Moyne, of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. Teach law at Harvard and Yale. Yeah, and so yeah, that that fits. I, sh I shouldn't say that. I'm working with a Harvard law professor now on the uh, the Lindell case. So that that's actually I don't think we've announced that publicly. I'm doing work on Mike Lindell's case. Uh, it's, it's his case against the FBI for basically all kinds of civil rights violations. You can look at the news for that. We'll probably, we'll probably publish articles on that too. But I'm working yeah. on that uh, with a couple of Harvard. Like Alan Dershowitz is is working on that. He's a Harvard law professor. So I shouldn't say too much bad stuff about them right now. Yeah. Well, and to me, this is the thing for me because. You can have your opinions, which are, in, in our view, very wrong about the Constitution. You can say you don't like it. You can say we should get rid of it, even. If you're professing law at a law school, you're supposed to be teaching people how the law works, mm -hmm. right? You're supposed to say, this is the way the system goes. Yeah, you're not, you're not teaching opinion. Yeah, you shouldn't be teaching your law students, none of this matters because we should just get rid of it. That does not really equip you. It's No, it's like a physicist <laughs> yeah. who teaches his students the ways that he would prefer the laws of physics work. Yeah. You know, I don't like it that objects move toward objects of larger mass. Mm -hmm. So I'm only going to teach you about how I think all objects should have an equal amount of gravity. Yeah. You know, actually, it's... Funny that you mentioned that because there's basically, you know, that, that was basically what the Nazis thought about physics. They were like, this newfangled physics <laughs> isn't good and right and wholesome. We want to, you know, we want to use the good, the, 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 the physics that we like instead. And so they, were, they tried to steer people away 
from David, are you comparing these Harvard law professors to Nazis? I mean, on the, in this particular sense, yes, I am. <laughs> uh, so you know, the, the Nazis were like, you know, don't don't listen to Oppenheimer and Einstein and all this new stuff about relativity and no, no, none of that. We just Newton. Newton was clean and simple, and we liked Newton. <laughs> Let's do Newton. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that fits. That really fits. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they might, they may have said Niels Bohr instead of, of Newton, but basically, you know, they didn't sure, they didn't sure. like the the newfangled. Yeah, physics. they don't because Newton's an Englishman. You don't want to cite him. Well, they they <laughs> they, they tended to admire the English, actually, to be fair. But yeah. um, actually, there's a Gorbel's article. It's like you know, Gorbel's minister of propaganda writes all the propaganda for the Nazi party. He has a whole article about how Britain criticizes the Nazis too much, and then he says, "Well, of course we can't compare to Great Britain. Of course they're <laughs> going to be doing better than we are." You know, the most famously nationalistic people in history are like, well, we're beat out by them, obviously, super easily. Don't judge us by their standards. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, that's... So what does that mean of Americans then? Oh, they, they, yeah, the Nazis didn't particularly like America. <laughs> um, but we don't necessarily need to go into the reasons why on this show. But uh, no. <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested, you can look at it I think up. it had to do with the makeup of our population. Yeah, but. it did. Uh, and uh, you can probably guess from there. <laughs> but... Um, some unpleasant stuff. Um, <laughs> but anyway, all that to say, you know, if your job is ostensibly being an expert on American law and being there to sort of tell people how it works and explain how it works, this is not, in my opinion, the best look for you to have and just say, oh, it, no. it's awful and we should get rid of it and have different laws. Well, and it repeats a really stupid, sorry, yeah, I guess really stupid thing that I, I hear a lot. So reading this first, all I can see right now is the first paragraph. But it says, when liberals lose in the Supreme Court, as they increasingly have over the past half century, which, all right, only because the Warren Court was... I'm not going to get into that. But <laughs> they, they usually say that the justices got the Constitution wrong. But struggling over the Constitution has proved the dead end. The real need is not to reclaim the Constitution, as many would have it, but instead to reclaim America from constitutionalism. Yeah. So, in other words, we've lost a lot, so we should stop caring about the Constitution. Which, by the way, this repeats, you hear this a lot in philosophy, you hear it a lot in religion, you hear it a lot in law. The idea that because people disagree about something, there's no right answer. Yeah. And we should give up on trying to find it. Yeah, well, in this case, the argument is actually a little bit worse, where it's just like, obviously... Maybe I'm being too charitable. Yeah, obviously <laughs> the best way to... Because it, it's not about, oh, the, the Constitution is inscrutable. It's really about the Constitution stops us from just doing whatever we want all the time. <laughs> doing like, whatever the left wants well, all the time. And they say that explicitly, when liberals lose yeah. in the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, in the, you know, they, they go on to say, you know, whatever, const, uh, whatever Congress, excuse me, decides to do on a given day, that should just be it, and there should be no checks on that. So... They want us to be legislative yeah, tyranny, they want us to, like you got over there in Britain. David. Yeah, they they want uh, my current home to be like my real home uh, in ways that we can discuss. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you, you've lived in a legislative tyranny for a couple of weeks now. What's it like? <laughs> you enjoying it? Uh, well, I did have a very hard time acquiring kitchen knives to use in in my kitchen because I didn't realize they keep those in the back room. That's right. And you have to like go and prove that you're. Over 25. Knives are regulated uh, now. <laughs> That's right. I remember that bill coming down a few years ago. Yeah. So un Unlike California. So, you know, people look at what California does. They see all of the crazy bills that come through our legislature. I'm going to let you in on the secret. None of those ever get implemented. 
Yeah. The legislature passes that stuff as a purely symbolic thing, and then they, they always plan it to be like 10 years out in the future. And then before that comes around, they decide they're not going to do it. So, but I guess that doesn't happen over there in Britain. Yeah. So I, I would say they, they seem to treat, including like, you know, I got a sort of rinky-dink little set of kitchen knives to cook with. They treat it about on par with the way we, you know, even some of our bluer states treat guns. Um, yeah. And actually, yep. you know, for the first few days I was here, I ended up having to eat almost exclusively sandwiches because I couldn't prepare actual food for myself. <laughs> did you did you try reminding them that you're a Protestant and therefore the English Bill of Rights protects your right to bear arms? I did not. But uh, they, as we have discussed, uh, it's very easy for them to modify their constitution excessively mm. easy. So you can't really hold them accountable to anything. No, and I think it. they have in fact explicitly changed <laughs> that provision <laughs> of the English Bill of Rights. I think before. they have. Yeah. So, yeah. now you got to get a background check to get kitchen knives. Well, they, they didn't do that Fun. but I did need to, you know, I mean, they, they gave me a sort of a token glance because I think I, I look uh, pretty notably over 25 at this point in my life. But yeah, I, I was supposed to prove to them that I was old enough to, to buy some kitchen knives from them. Wow. Mm-hmm. Boy, when you think it's gotten bad in California, look at the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the freer countries, too. Uh, is that all we have for Captain Kangaroo? That's Ford? all I've got, so unless you've got something. I think that's all. Thank you for joining us again for another rousing, exciting, and hopefully educational episode about the eccentricities of law across the world, uh, places that have rights and places that don't in Captain Kangaroo Court. So we'll see you all, folks, again next week. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much yeah, it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening to our podcast. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening again, folks. See ya.